0: Alright, so like we said, uh, winter has arrived, which means next Sunday we'll do a Christmas sermon. And then the Sunday after that, we will not have morning gatherings. If you missed Kathy's announcement, we will not do morning gatherings on December 24th. We will, of course, have a couple, uh, Lord willing, excellent Christmas Eve services on the 24th. Uh, So that's the next couple of weeks, which means that this week we're going to wrap up our six-part series that we've been working through in the book of 1 Timothy called Blueprint, God's Design for Our Community of Grace. And if you've been with us, um, this letter is all about Paul, the experienced pastor, writing to Timothy, that's the young pastor, how Christians are to live as a church family. This is a very practical book. You've gotten that, right? That uh, covers all kinds of things like how church authority is supposed to work. It covers things like gender roles and gender distinctions and um, how we're to treat widows and how we're to treat uh, elders and how we're to treat um, deacons and uh, et etc. Et so now we're at the very end of the letter, chapter six, um, Paul's writing from a Roman prison remember to his spiritual son and what is the very final topic that he wants to cover in this letter what does he want to make sure that timothy understands answer material possessions wealth that's what he wants to talk about for the final thing i got money and money's on my mind that's the theme of chapter six Because if you think about it, what is a clear, visible mark that we belong to God, that we are part of a community of grace? What is a clear, visible mark that we are in right relationship with the God of the universe? Depending on the kind of church that you grew up in, uh, there can be all kinds of answers to that question. Um, if you grew up Pentecostal, then the sign that that God is in you is that you have got the Holy Ghost dance. And you occasionally speak in really weird languages. If you grew up Roman Catholic, the sign that God is in you is that you went through First Communion and Confirmation and a few other things. And that, that means that, that you're in relationship with God. If you grew up Fundamentalist Baptist, the marks of a true... Faith include a deep and abiding love for the Gaither Band and potluck suppers. (laughs) But then when you just let the New Testament speak for itself, what we realize is that at the forefront of authentic Christianity lived out beyond ourselves is this visible mark of generosity. Christians are not meant to live our lives always trading up to the next thing. Grasping and clawing after the the next better car and the next better house and the next better pool membership and the list goes on and on and on. The Christians are encouraged and invited and exhorted not to live our lives trading up, but instead giving up, investing in eternity, and that's the last thing in his letter that Paul wants to say to Timothy. So, if you've already turned there, and it sounded like a bunch of you have um, First Timothy, if you're ha- not there yet, and you use, want to use the black Bibles, this is on page 992. So, our big question this morning, as we move into the text here, what keeps me? This is a question I've been asking myself all week now. What keeps me from being as generous? as God desires. Well, Treff, I am generous. Okay, <laughs> understood. That's kind of why I thought it would be important to add that last piece there. What keeps me from being as generous as God desires? Because at the end of this sermon, at the end of this month, in the years ahead, my hope for Medway Community Church is that more and more we would be a church family filled with lots of little church families that regularly pray, as you have been to me, God, I will be to others. That this would become something of marching orders for us, that out of this amazing generosity and grace of God, we would then be regularly bending that generosity back out toward folks around us. As you have been to me, God, I will be to others. That's First Timothy chapter 6. We'll pick it up at verse 3, where we left off last week, and then straight on to the end. Hear now the very word of the Lord. If anyone teaches a different doctrine... But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing to the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment, unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings and lord of lords who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion amen as for the rich in this present age Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Thus ends the reading of God's word and the reading of this letter. So here's how I broke up uh, the text. Here's some handholds if you want to use these. Um, verses 3 to 10 are about the danger of temporal things. Verses 11 to 16 I titled the devotion to eternal things. And then verses 17 through 21 we'll call the duty with material things. So first section here, the devotion excuse me, the danger of temporal things. Verse nine, it says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. If we're gonna be the church God wants us to be, Apparently we we really need to have a gospel shaped view of money. And the Bible is pretty clear on this. Verse nine, which I just read, is pretty clear on this. A hunger, the, the craving to be rich is a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> At least a few Star Wars fans here. uh, The Greek word is uh, noose. This is the kind that would be used to capture a bird or an animal. It lays hidden and then ensnares at just the right time. And, and, And Paul's saying, yeah, the hunger for wealth, it does the exact same thing. It ensnares you. It is a noose. It might be subtle, right? Because you might start off, especially if you grew up where moms and dads or grandmas and grandpas taught you a biblical view of of giving and generosity and wealth and possessions. It might start off that, you know, you you really practice all of this and we're living for God. And then somewhere along the line, because... The, the culture around us and the heart within us is begging us to be grasping and just trading up, not giving up. Somewhere along the line, it all becomes about living for God plus stuff. And then we find ourselves hitting middle age, and we realize that we're living for God as a means unto stuff. When, when did it all go wrong? This is how hunger for wealth works. Is this a problem for you? It's an extremely practical text. It's something of a piercing text. Is hunger for wealth and craving for material and possessions a problem for you? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. In fact, I re- reject as strongly as I can to look around and judge other folks based on the price of their car, or the square footage of their house. I do not know your heart and you do not know mine, but I do encourage you to examine your own heart. And unto that, I do have three diagnostic questions that I think can be very helpful. Here's number one. Am I willing to sacrifice things better than money to get money? Am I willing to sacrifice things better than money to get money. Things like a clear conscience, your reputation, time with your spouse, time with your kids, support of your church family. That's that's number one. Second diagnostic question Do I attempt to buy with money what only God can give? Happiness? Satisfaction? Purpose, identity? Do I attempt to buy with money what only God can give? None of us really knows the depths of our heart, but you know your heart. Do these ring true? Do they resonate with you? Number three, which statement would cause more distress in your soul? God is displeased with you, or you have no money in your savings account. Which one, would, which one would strike right there with more force? I think we could lay down the following axiom, and I've tested it in my own life, and I believe it's true. What worries you masters you. What worries you masters you. What do you fall asleep thinking about with anxiety? What do you wake up concerned about? It is a, it is a good bet that whatever that is, that is that is driving your life decisions and your behavior which is why verse 6 rings true godliness with contentment is great gain i can almost see paul in my mind's eye writing that with chains around his wrist and he writes god oh this is this is exactly right godliness with contentment is gain and then he pauses and he crosses it out he says no that's not right godliness with contentment is great gain because paul knows the opposite of contentment is covetousness it's like drinking seawater can never slake your thirst right um History is filled with examples. of Folks get shipwrecked, oftentimes in wartime, sailors abandon at sea, and the thirst, it just builds and builds and builds until that begins to take over what you cognitively know you should not do, and you begin to drink the seawater. And it it just builds and builds from there, right? Because of the salt content, the more you drink, the thirstier you become. You get headaches and you get dry mouth, and the salt content in your body goes up, and your blood pressure goes down, and you get a rapid heart rate, and then you get delirium, and then you get death. And Paul's saying, yeah, that's, that's kind of what money and possessions does. You see what you want, you, you imagine that that can satisfy, and then the next thing will satisfy, and then the thing after that will satisfy, and it just gradually kills your soul. Why? Well, think about it. The hunger for wealth, materialism, it is the breeding ground for a thousand other different kinds of sins, not the least of which are selfishness, cheating, fraud, robbery, perjury, violence, marital difficulties, exploitation, blackmail, injustice. In fact, in a gathering this size, It is a good bet that there are some in this room who we have spent, almost every major decision we have made since we exited puberty was based around the question, how can I be richer? And it's a craving that can never be satisfied. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. It's like drinking seawater. But for God's church, For the Christian, it's not about our standard of living. Paul tries to pivot us and say it's a lot more about our standard of giving. It's not about our standard of living. It's a lot more about our standard of giving, which is why he then takes us to verses 11 through 16, the devotion to eternal things. Verse 11 says, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love. Uh, Middle of verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. You guys know the name John Wesley? Incredible evangelist, 1700s, pastor, wrote a whole bunch of hymns that we sing here and that are in the hymnal. Early on, before he became famous, he resolved that he was going to live on as little as he could and he was going to give as much as he could away. And then he started to get famous. So in 1731, uh, Wesley earned a total of 30 pounds. Living expenses were 28 pounds. So he gave two pounds to the church and to the poor. following year, his income doubled. But he still lived on 28 pounds. So he now gave... 32 pounds away. Year three, his income was 90 pounds. He gave 62 away. Year four, he made 120 pounds, gave 92 away. Point is, at the height of his income... After he became really, really famous on this side of the pond and on that side of the pond, and he's all kinds of writings and sermons and guest speaker. He he earned, it's his best year, he earned 1,400 pounds. And he gave it away almost as fast as it came in because he said he wanted to lay up treasure in heaven. In contemporary terms, that means he earned about $160,000 that year, and he chose to live that year on 20,000 it's weird. <laughs> why would you do that? Because you, you really believe that godliness with contentment is great gain. Why, why would you get up an extra hour early to snow blow your driveway to go to a room where a bald guy can encourage you to give your money away? <laughs> Isn't it to some extent Because there's something... (laughs) There's something in us that tells us... I think godliness with contentment... Is great gain. It's the kind of gain I've been looking for. Listen. Money and possessions... They will always let you down. At the most painful moment of your life... When you enter into death... Money and possessions have nothing for you. So for the Christian... We resolve now, before then, that it's not about our standard of living. It's a lot more about our standard of giving. I wonder sometimes, either uh, because of a hard heart or just because we've never been taught otherwise, I wonder if some of us view church support as tantamount to paying admission So we just kind of do the math in our heads, maybe just subconsciously, we don't even think it through in exactly these terms, but we know in our mind that a movie ticket is $12 and a high school musical might run as much as $25 and a Pat's ticket of reasonably good seats is maybe 300. And so we just kind of do do the math in our heads and we think, well, how much is a church service with free coffee worth to me? (laughs) And then we give accordingly. And then we read texts like this. And they're meant to remind us that the Christian life, folks, is marked by generosity. So I want to exhort you, church. And I got no shame in doing it. I got no hesitation. I want to exhort us, church, to give away as much as possible, as often as possible, so that as many as possible might be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the Christian, um, I think our generosity needs to fall into three buckets. The local church, global missions, and support of the poor. For my part, I'm pretty convinced that when it's led well, the local church is the best vehicle for all three of those. If you you disagree with me, as okay, um, my concern this morning... It is not to get more money for MCC. Um, If you do not fully trust the leadership that's in place here or the congregation that votes our budget, if you um, uh, are dissatisfied with the level of transparency in our finances, uh, that would surprise me, um, but that is fine. My goal here is not to get more money for MCC. It is to impress upon you that Scripture is abundantly clear that for the professed believer in Jesus Christ, generosity is a central. Mark of our k- Christian faith. And so if you come at it and you accept that for what it is and then after a careful reading of scripture you determine more and more that I think a significant part of that needs to be supporting my own church family then so much the better. Um, but I'll tell you right now you are not going to get at this church the silly um, prosperity gospel nonsense that some of us have been exposed to over the years. That if you give $10 today God is going to give you $100 next week. I, I do not ex- ex- accept that at all. I do not um, buy into that. Here's what I do know. If you give generously, God will absolutely bless you. I have no idea how he will do that. What I do know is that five minutes into eternity, nobody is going to say, gosh, I wish I had kept more money for myself. Many will say, gosh, I wish I'd given more away. You know, we got... um, at this church, pretty good-sized ministry team. It's called Connect. It's got three silos, a uh, parking team, uh, coffee prep, and then our guest services, the sanctuary and the foyer team. And if you, by the way, if you're looking for a good way to make kind of a significant impact on the church and on guests, that's a good way uh, to go. Um, but I, I remember it was a little while back. Um, it was kind of a raw, it was a very raw, rainy day. And somewhere in the middle of the music set, the last member of our parking team made his way in here and he stepped in through the the front doors there and he took off his hat and he shook off his coat and then he stepped into the entry door there and he just smiled as he listened to the congregation singing and then after a moment he raised his hands to join in and I thought to myself this week well, man... That is like a perfect picture of what this chapter is about. Just, it was just one guy, right, in kind of rotten weather, investing himself so the rest of us could get in here safely. And then he enjoyed the worship of God's people. It's a great picture of what this whole chapter is about. Investing not in our standard of living, but rather... Enhancing our standard of giving. So, how are we doing here at MCC? I mean, I gotta, it's a practical chapter. I got to preach in practical terms. How are we doing here at MCC? That's what the last section's about. There, you got uh, the danger of temporal things, and then you have the devotion to eternal things, and then finally, we have the duty with material things. I'm at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, um, skip forward a little. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We could probably pause right there and admit that the pushback to that is, well, I'm not rich. (laughs) It's just the exact same pushback to every uncomfortable command you ever find in the scripture. I don't think that applies to me. Same thing here. Come on. I know many of us don't feel rich but quick reality check to my knowledge every soul in this church family has food shelter and clothing and if that is not the case I want you to make me and our deacons aware of that immediately. To my knowledge every member of our church family has food clothing and shelter. Do you realize that for those of us who make more than $37,000 a year, we are in the top 4% of wage earners on the entire planet? It's amazing. Two-car households, streaming video, air conditioning. Um, what do you call the thing that grinds in the sink? The, uh, yeah, except it's not garbage we put in there. It's food we don't eat. <laughs> it's for the rich. Well... Listen, in America, being Christian is almost synonymous with being rich. The point is not iPhones, non-GMO foods, you go down the list. The point is not to feel guilty about our blessings. I cannot preach that from the scripture. I do not think it's biblical, and there's no verse that commands that the, the rich trade places with the poor. There is a 150 verses that preach the rich be generous. The rich be generous with what God gives to us. How do I know if I'm generous? Well, compare how you live to how you give. So, our church collector uh, crunched some numbers for us this week, and uh, this next slide is how we're doing uh, right now. Uh, This is current through last week, I guess 10 days ago. Financial giving to MCC over the past 12 months. uh, You got the, the range of giving brackets right here, and then if you read across, you could see, for instance, that those in this range we had 22 households or giving partners give an average annual gift of $122, which totaled for our budget about $2,700. Or if you drop down to the bottom bracket, you can see we had at the $20,000 plus, we had nine giving partners give an average annual gift of about $34,000 for an annual total of $304,000 looked at these for a while, not a long while. I spent a little bit of time looking at it. A couple observations sort of jump out at me. When you you total the number of giving partners who have invested at least an average of $10 a month, this is 96% of our members and our regular attendees. So close to 100% of our church family, all of our members and our regular attendees are willing to invest at least $10 a month. And obviously, many invest quite a bit more than that. That's the first observation. Uh, Second observation, I showed you guys this slide three and a half years ago. Um, You may remember. uh, Now, with all of the updated info from this past year, I can tell you that almost... Every single one of these brackets has increased significantly. It certainly increased with the number of giving partners. Well, one would expect that because the church is significantly larger than it was three and a half years ago. But also the average annual gift has gone up significantly uh, ahead of inflation. I thought, that. well, that's a good sign. Um, ironically, the only two average annual gifts that have decreased are the bottom two brackets here. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you apply 1 Timothy 6 to data like this, see, in God's economy, the bigger gifts toward the bottom do not necessarily imply a heart that is generous or right with God. It could imply all kinds of things like really intelligent tax decisions, could imply all kinds of things. I have no idea the wealth of these givers. So I try not to make assumptions about that. Likewise, in God's economy, we would be exceedingly unwise to make assumptions about the small gifts. If you recall, after all, the gold medal giver in the New Testament was a woman who gave how many copper coins? two copper coins. What I really want to do is compare not our support to everyone else's support and just make sure that we're at least in the top 50%. I think that would be mistaken. What I really want us to do is compare our standard of living to our standard of giving and then ask, God, in all honesty, God, are you challenging me and enabling me to maybe move up a level or two. Here's what's great about preaching on money today. MCC has no particular or urgent need for money today. It's so much nicer to preach when we're not begging for it. When when we don't need you to give more to make payroll or to keep the lights and the heat on, I praise God for that. You guys know, I mean, we're we're acquiring properties this year, um, where we're beginning to form a new vision, and all of that is possible because for the last several years, our giving has been above our expenses. It has been above our budget. We have a pretty fiscally conservative group of church leaders who try and be careful that we have a good savings account so that we can take advantage quickly of God-given opportunities like these properties when the opportunities present themselves. So, uh, praise God, I am not preaching out of desperation. Um, I'm preaching because this primary mark of the Christian life One of these primary marks is generosity. And if sacrificial, generous giving is not a part of your life, can I suggest three strategies to get there? Very quickly. Number one, priority. Pray it out. The the beginning this month, God would make this a priority in your life. Now, based on the median income of our region and in the graphic that I just showed you, um, the support of our church family is a significant priority for many. It is not a priority for all. Priority number two, percentage. Choose a percentage and stick to it. Very few will begin at the Old Testament tithe level of 10% of total income. Recognizing that, my exhortation to you is to choose a percentage and go from there. Choose a percentage and stick to it. Get out of the mindset that I will give generously if I have enough to give generously out of. But we build this into our budget as much as we build in anything else. Priority, percentage, and then last step, progressive. Make a commitment that every year or every six months you will increase your level of giving. Um, Percent or a half percent, and just see if God does not meet you in your faithfulness and enable even more. To live for eternity means we're not about a standard of living, but rather a standard of giving. Why? Because, verse 20, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Remember, it was Christ. Who though he was rich, he made himself poor, that those of us who are poor might be made rich, might be made heirs with Christ and sons of God. And so the text is just, it's flat out asking us: Are you guarding the deposit of your bank account? Or are you guarding the deposit of the gospel? Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. washing all my I